From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What Colorado's U.S. Senators are and aren't saying about a replacement for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we'll check in with our D.C. correspondent, Caitlin Kim. Then, how all this might influence the U.S. Senate race in Colorado. And later, what it was like to work for the now late justice. Colorado's Attorney General, Phil Weiser, clerked for her. She was a personal mentor for me. She was the most demanding boss I've ever had. She made me a better lawyer and a better person. Plus, the integrity of the election is top of mind. We'll dissect those concerns in the latest episode of Purplish. And a hip-hop celebration of Hispanic heritage. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We can expect news to move fast this week around replacing Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're going to start our coverage this morning with Washington correspondent Caitlin Kim, who's been keeping tabs on Colorado's U.S. senators this weekend, who are, of course, pivotal to this. And Caitlin, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. President Trump now says he expects to announce his nominee on Friday or Saturday, and he said that he intends to pick a woman. What else do we know? Well, President Trump also said he is looking at four or five potential nominees. Now, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said within hours of Justice Ginsburg's passing that President Trump's nominee to replace her quote, will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. Now, you may remember McConnell blocked then-President Barack Obama's final nominee to the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland, for nearly 10 months in 2016, saying it was too close to the election and that the American people should have a say. Well, now we are, of course, just a month and a half away from the 2020 election. What McConnell is stressing now is that an election, that that 2016 election was one where the president was a, a different party than the one controlling the Senate. That is not the case now. And more importantly, he's saying that voters did have a say in 2018 when they sent back a Republican majority to the Senate. President Trump uh, actually released a list of potential Supreme Court nominees earlier this month, obviously before Justice Ginsburg's death. A Colorado name is on that list, but I, I understand is not among the reported frontrunners now. Yes. Now, this has been a thing for President Trump, which others have not done in the past, and that's to put out a list of people he might nominate to the Supreme Court. It was something social conservatives wanted when he was a candidate. Now, Trump recently updated the list, which now has over 40 names. There were actually two Coloradans on that list. But since President Trump says he intends to nominate a woman, I'll just start with Allison Ide. She's been a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit based in Colorado since 2017. Now, Ide is not considered one of the frontrunners. Again, Trump says he's narrowed it down to four or five. The Trump, the sorry, the front runners are considered to be Judge Barbara Lagoa, who serves on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. She's a Cuban-American. She's considered a protege of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is a close Trump ally. And Florida is a state that Trump needs to win the election. The other is Amy Coney Barrett, a judge on the 7th Circuit Court of Appeals from Indiana. Now, she's a protege of former Justice Antonin Scalia. What both women are, are considered um, reliable conservative judges. Uh, we've had a little bit of trouble with the line. So Allison Ide was the, the Coloradan that you mentioned, and then Amy Coney Barrett, who's a front runner in this. Bring us up to date on what Colorado's two U.S. senators have said about replacing Ginsburg before the election. And why don't we start with Republican Cory Gardner? 
Sure. Senator Gardner spoke at a Club 20 forum in Grand Junction on Saturday, and he declined to stand by his 2016 statement, saying that the Senate should wait and let the American people have a say. There is time for debate. There is time for politics. But the time for now is to pray for the family and to make sure that we keep their, their, their family in our, in our hearts and prayers as we mourn as a nation. Now, again, uh, Majority Leader McConnell has urged Republicans to hold off on declaring their intentions, although a number have come out in support of McConnell's plan for a vote. Only two senators, um, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, have called for waiting. Now, pressure will be on Gardner, who is up for re-election in one of the most critically watched races in the country, because it could also help decide the balance of power in the Senate. And what about Democratic Senator Michael Bennett? Well, according to his spokesperson, Senator Bennett thinks the Senate should wait till after the election. Now, Bennett commented during a a volunteer phone banking event on Sunday. Our job is to make this country more democratic, and I mean that with a small d, democratic, more democratic, more fair and more free. That was RBG's vision for this country. That's our vision for this country. As I said, all of this happening very quickly. As of this morning, we don't yet have details about memorial services for Justice Ginsburg. That's right. Although we do know that it's likely to happen this week because Trump said he wanted to wait until the services are over to announce a nominee to replace Ginsburg. It is expected that she will lie in repose at the Supreme Court for two days. And she will also lie in state at the Capitol for one day and then will be buried in Arlington National Cemetery next to her husband. People have been leaving flowers outside the Supreme Court. Flags there are at half staff for 30 days. And in U.S. Supreme Court tradition, Ginsburg's chair and bench directly in front of it are draped in black wool in her memory. That is CPR's Caitlin Kim, our Washington, D.C. reporter. As soon as it was clear that Senator Mitch McConnell would move ahead with confirmation, political scientist Seth Maskett sent a tweet that had a lot of layers, which he's going to unpeel for us now. Maskett leads the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. Coincidentally, tomorrow his new book comes out, Learning from Loss, the Democrats 2016 to 2020. And Seth Maskett, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Ryan. I'm going to read what you tweeted over the weekend. An impeached president who lost the popular vote naming a justice who will be confirmed by senators representing 40 percent of the population is both constitutionally permissible and a legitimacy nightmare. Unpack that for us. So this was kind of getting at the idea of uh, an increasing situation we're seeing. People are calling it minority rule. Uh, you know, that is the the American political system allows for situations where um, it's not simply the, the the team or the the candidates with the most votes that get to govern. Um, you know, some of that is and some of the American government is, but it's possible because of the way that votes are distributed throughout the states. Uh, for one party to get more votes, but the other party to win more seats. Um, And we've certainly seen that in several election cycles recently where Democrats have won more votes for Senate, but Republicans still win the seats because uh, they win the more more rural, the more sparsely populated states. That also builds in a bias in the Electoral College as well, where um, it's possible, as, as happened in 2016, as happened in 2000, where one party can win the popular vote and the other can win the Electoral College and the White House. And we see things skewing a bit more in that direction where, you know, that you combine that with party polarization, you get these very narrow votes where 
essentially the party that's that's winning fewer votes and is is less popular is increasingly getting to govern more. After what we've heard from GOP senators Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, as mentioned by Caitlin Kim just a few moments ago, do you think it's possible the Republicans won't have enough votes to confirm whomever Trump picks? I mean, it's certainly possible, but my suspicion is that uh, Trump and McConnell wouldn't have pushed for this vote if they didn't think they had the votes in the first place. Mm. I'm sure they have touched base with uh, with Collins and Murkowski and others, uh, you know, just to make sure that they, uh, you know, they had at least 51 votes to go forward. Uh, you know, there's there's always some uncertainty with this, uh, you know, particularly given the uh, th- that several of these senators are in tight reelection races. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming they're, they're pretty confident the votes are there. Yeah. What what do you think is the effect of this on the Gardner-Hickenlooper Senate race in Colorado? So one of the things that um, this Supreme Court nomination contest brings in is that it, it, it just it's one more thing that nationalizes a Senate race. Um, so, you know, Cory Gardner, uh, probably his main problem in going forward is that he is saddled with, uh, you know, an unpopular President Trump and an unpopular Republican Party within Colorado. To the extent Gardner can, he's been trying to emphasize his own contributions in Colorado and his own work across party lines. Um, anytime the National Republican Party, anytime Trump becomes the dominant conversation, that hurts Gardner's reelection. Mm. My guess is he probably still votes uh, you know, to approve uh, Trump's nominee. But in general, this is probably a, this is a conversation he doesn't really want to be having. This is a vote he, he's not really enthusiastic about casting. It's been fascinating to see over the weekend what tools Democrats believe they'll have uh, to shape the court in the way they'd like, assuming they're able to regain power. And that's uh, that's a big assumption. But what what are some of those tools? Well, you know, it's interesting to to hear them talking about it. I mean, a lot of Democrats are treating the last few Supreme Court nominations as uh, as as major norm violations. That is, in 2016, when uh, McConnell kept open a seat and refused to consider uh, uh, Barack Obama's nominee in, in his final year in office, uh, that was you know that was a major departure from from the norms, from you know the the, the traditions that the Senate has run by. Um, the, the Justice Kavanaugh's nomination was also very controversial. Um, you know, Democrats are sort of treating these as a series of things that need some sort of response um, or some sort of set of rules. You know, basically, when, when you have a series of norm violations, traditionally, there's some sort of pushback for it. If we think of, um, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, who broke the, the, the tradition of serving just two terms, he decided to serve a third and then a fourth. And uh, Republicans responded in, as, as soon as he was out of office by uh, passing a constitutional amendment, making it impossible for presidents to serve more than two terms. Mm. So we, we might see some sort of pushback from that from, from Democrats. It could be just establishing some formal rules about uh, nominees always being guaranteed a vote. It could be adding people to the court, assuming they have the, the votes to do that, you know, adding two or three justices um, to increase the size of the court. That's permissible under the Constitution. It would, it would break break a tradition, but it's certainly permissible. Uh, they could add states. They could grant statehood to the District of Columbia or to Puerto Rico, um, in theory, to, you know, to, to probably add more Democratic seats uh, to the Senate, which would make things somewhat more balanced. So you have this new book, Learning from Loss, about the last four years for Democrats. And that period would obviously include the confirmation of 
Justice Kavanaugh, which, as you noted, was highly contentious and came right before the midterms. Does that chapter give us any insight into whether Supreme Court cases or Supreme Court seats, rather, energize voters? Um, it was interesting. The so in my interviews with um, a lot of Democratic activists for this book, where I was I was just trying to get a sense of what people were thinking between 2016 and 2020 um, uh, about the presidential race and, and other aspects of American politics. Um, several people brought up the Kavanaugh nomination fight as something that that had a major impact on their thinking. I I, I spoke to one uh, young Democratic activist in D.C. She had mentioned that she she was initially a, a big fan of Joe Biden's. And had come out very early for him, just thinking, oh, he's someone who can win. And, and I, you know, I support a lot of the things he believes in. Um, but that the Kavanaugh nomination had, you know, in her own words, she said she, that kind of radicalized me. Um, you know, I, I hadn't really appreciated how much women's rights and women's accomplishments were really on the line here. Reproductive freedoms, um, uh, people's uh, belief about about sexual assault. And after that, she she changed her support. She decided to come out and, and join um, uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign as just saying, we need a woman in, in a position in a serious position of power right now if we're going to make any changes along these lines. Seth Maskett, in, in just a few seconds, the discussion on the left and right about Ginsburg's seat is almost existential, you know, for the future of health care, the future of abortion. Does the fact that so much rides on one seat demonstrate like that the judicial branch plays an outsized role compared to the legislative or executive? I mean, it's it's interesting to think how much emphasis we place on on one Supreme Court seat or just the presidency. Um, for making a difference. And in, in theory, the legislature is supposed to be the place where we concentrate most of our fire. That is the most democratic branch of government. Mm. Um, and yet in some ways, people seem to have kind of given up on a place to make policy change there. There's there's a, a ton of gridlock, certainly within Congress. Um, it's difficult to get them to uh, address major issues, particularly when yeah. your party isn't in control. And uh, so, yeah, we, we end up spending a lot of time and a lot of money um, focusing on replacing just one person. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a disproportion to what the system was designed up to be. Seth Maskett there. He directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. His new book out tomorrow is called Learning from Loss, the Democrats 2016 to 2018. Among the people mourning Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a Coloradan who worked for her. State Attorney General Phil Weiser was a year or so out of law school when he clerked for Ginsburg. It wound up being an eventful year, including a Colorado case that changed the course of gay rights. Attorney General, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure to join you, Ryan. The case I was making reference to is Romer versus Evans. In 1992, Colorado passed Amendment 2, which prohibited local governments from creating civil rights protections for LGBT people. The Supreme Court case challenged that, and the justices ultimately overturned Amendment 2. What did you learn from Justice Ginsburg working on that? First, I want to say, when I watched that argued, I had just finished a clerkship here in Denver and had obviously, like everyone who moves out here, fallen in love with Colorado. And so I was very much concerned about what was going to happen in this case. I, I really felt like we were seeing a critical equality issue and I wanted to make sure um, that I was active and engaged. And Justice Ginsburg always talked to the clerks beforehand and it was not sure how this was going to come out. And so I, I learned that in the case of Justice Ginsburg, 
a true deep commitment to equality was part of her fabric. And she had worked on gender discrimination cases, equality cases involving women in the 1970s as an advocate. And then this was her, I think, third term on the court. We had these two major cases. This is one of the two major cases that involved equal protection. And what happened was the majority worked together to craft an opinion that really helped pivot the law. Because before that case, the Supreme Court had ruled you could even criminalize consensual uh, sexual relations between gays, and that was okay. And so it was not at all clear this was going to come out the way it did. But the majority, and included six members of the court, all came together on an opinion that talked about how singling a group out like this uh, law did, Amendment 2, was unconstitutional. And that has led the way for a generation of further cases in the LGBTQ area, ultimately leading up to allowing for uh, marriage equality. You said that she would talk to her clerks before uh, major cases came before the court. What, what were the kinds of things she would talk to you about? So it really depended. And this was actually one of the best parts of the clerkship is she might reminisce and reflect on her career, her arguing cases before the Supreme Court. What made a good Supreme Court advocate? Why the court decided cases the way they did? What issues were important to her? Really for me to have this front row seat to this extraordinary institution was a life-changing event. It was an incredible gift, and I owe her so much for all that I learned. I mean, I was there as a relatively young lawyer, 26, 27 years old, uh, just soaking it all up. Did you ever get one-on-one time with Justice Ginsburg? I did, and this is actually a bittersweet element of the court. Uh, There were regular cases involving the death penalty, where a single clerk had to stay late at night and was the clerk assigned to the case. So you would go and brief the justice on this particular death penalty case. Because there might be emergency appeals, right? Exactly right. That's right, in these emergency appeals. And Justice Ginsburg would often be in the middle of thought on who knows what she was working on, whether it's a speech or an opinion, and she would just start talking to you about whatever's on her mind. And so it was this both uncomfortable situation. It was someone's life and it was a a very weighty matter, but it was also a chance to engage with her on a one-on-one basis. And that helped build our connection, our relationship. And I'm trying to remember if it was one of those times or something else where I had a really interesting conversation with her, which is timely now because of the high holidays. The Supreme Court was going to sit that year on Yom Kippur, the highest uh, day of the holiest day of the year for, for Jews. And she's Jewish, although not observant. And she was agonizing whether or not she should say she would sit or not. Mm. And ultimately, she decided she wouldn't have. Uh, but she and I had that conversation, and I actually then shared with her all the uh, news stories about Sandy Koufax when he faced a similar decision <laughs> from, from playing, playing for the Dodgers. In baseball. Uh, That's right. You mentioned that uh, when you had gone to Washington, D.C. to clerk for Justice Ginsburg, this is in 95, 96, uh, that you had already been in Colorado and that you actually had been clerking for a Colorado judge here. Uh, Tell us who that was, because this is an interesting story to unravel. It is an interesting story. Judge David E. Bell hired me out of law school, and it was basically I applied to clerk in any city that had a baseball team and a Jewish community. Um, I had grown up on the East Coast, and the Rockies had just come to town. And the first time I'd been in Denver was for that interview with Judge J.V. Bell. And I remember it vividly. There was a 
post office worker who pulled over the side of the road to ask me if I was lost. And I thought, boy, that wouldn't happen in New York. Um, they'd be running you over. And so I, I had an incredible experience working with David E. Bell. It was still a highlight in my professional career. And he had clerked for Justice Byron White, who at that point was retired. And so White said, I'll take you on as a retired clerk, but I don't have that much for you to do. So I'm going to let you work with an active justice. And he talked to Justice Ginsburg and she agreed to take me on. So I, in a somewhat, again, random way, fate has it, got to work with her. And she gave me an incredible experience. And I had the bonus of getting to know Justice Byron White as well, who had had her seat beforehand and was also a civil rights icon. Justice White at Colorado was Bobby Kennedy's deputy at the Justice Department right. back in the early 60s. But a fascinating contrast. Justice White wrote the famed dissent in the Roe versus Wade abortion case. I mean, be between Justice White and Justice Ginsburg, two very different points of view there, wouldn't you say? I would and I wouldn't. Um, a couple of thoughts on this, and it was a treasure for me that when we had a conference about Justice White at the University of Colorado, when I had come back to Colorado and I was teaching law, she came and spoke. And what she said at that conference was, she argued six cases in the 1970s around gender equality. And there was only one justice who ruled for her in all six, and that was Justice Byron White. Hmm. So Justice White was indeed a dissenter in Roe. And it's worth noting that Justice Ginsburg had her reservations about Roe in that she thought the law moved too quickly and the court might have decided that case on more modest grounds and it would have helped the doctrine become more well established. And arguably, the court did move more slowly in the LGBTQ area where there's been less subsequent pushback to that legal doctrine. And so there's a way in which they share some uh, deeply held views. And, mm -hmm. and on a personal level, it was interesting. I remember this vividly. Justice Ginsburg, in talking about Justice White stepping down, noted that Justice White was the only justice who acknowledged his wife as a partner when he stepped down. And I will say Justice Ginsburg and Marty Ginsburg were also real partners. So they had a, a fair bit in common and they had a great personal affection for one another, too. When did you last see Justice Ginsburg? Was it when you argued that case that had to do with the Electoral College? What was it earlier this year? So there's two answers, Ryan. Uh, there's when I saw her in person last, which I think was March of 2019. But I also appeared before her at the Supreme Court in that Faithless Electors case. And it was the last case she will ever hear as a justice. And so that's going to be a deeply meaningful memory for me that I got the chance to argue before her. Indeed, I'm the last person who had that opportunity. Thanks so much for your time. It's really a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. That is Democratic Attorney General of Colorado, Phil Weiser. He clerked for the now late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1995 and 96. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with our politics podcast, Purplish. The latest episode is about voting integrity and an update on a COVID relief package. I'm Ryan Morner. You're with CPR News. Together, we've been transitioning to a new normal, and we all have a lot of questions. Your support means you, your friends, and your neighbors will continue to have access to CPR's trustworthy coverage of today's stories. Your membership ensures that this valuable community resource for news and music remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. There are many ways to give, including monthly, as an Evergreen member. Thank you for your support at CPR.org. 
Election integrity is a huge concern heading into November, and it's one of two key issues the Purplish team is tackling today. Purplish is our politics podcast, by the way. This time, CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland is joined by Andy Kenny and once again, Caitlin Kim. So we're seeing a new national interest in mail voting because of concerns people have about voting in person during the pandemic. And as a result, some states have moved to give more people access to mail voting. Yet there's still strong reluctance and fear, I would say, especially from some on the right about universal mail voting. And that concern has been elevated, especially by the president. He's been saying for months that it leads to widespread voter fraud. And today they want to give everybody ballots. And every place where they've done it, it's been a mess. It's been a mess. They don't know where they are. They don't know who they're sending them to. It's a terrible thing. Follow your ballot. So that was President Trump at a recent campaign stop in North Carolina. And Colorado is one of those states that he is referring to because we do send everyone a ballot. That's right. President Trump, as he often does, was making a very broad attack, which without a lot of evidence to back it up. But it was specifically singling out states like Colorado, where we do send out those ballots to pretty much every registered voter at this point. Um, so we wanted to dive into that and and talk a little bit about how this system has played out in Colorado and how this new conversation affects it. Colorado, interestingly enough, has actually had the option of mail voting for any reason that a voter wants since 1993. Wow, I didn't realize it went back that far. Yeah, that's when voters could first go out of their way and and request a mail ballot with no need to have an excuse for why they wanted to vote by mail. And since then, it's kind of evolved and expanded. By 2013, that's when we really got the system we have today, which is known as the universal mail-in system, where practically every voter is going to automatically get a ballot sent to them in the mail. But even before then, uh, adoption of mail voting was really quite high in Colorado and Surveys show that people here love it. The numbers are astounding. Yeah, I actually spoke to a lot of Colorado voters when I was there who, you know, raved about the fact that they could just sort of they get the ballot and they could just either, you know, they could send it in the mail. They could drop it off at a ballot box. Some would actually take it down to the courthouse. They liked having that flexibility. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And I think one thing that we've noticed and, and the president mentioned this is a concern that. It's going to take a lot longer to know the results, and that could lead to uncertainty and, you know, it could be potentially tumultuous. And, you know, in 2019, which was an off election year, and so pretty light participation, we found in Colorado that uh, it did take a lot of the larger counties until after the election to process ballots. And so in Arapahoe County, for instance, it was three days to finish counting ballots. And so... Uh, election supervisors across the nation say we can expect to wait days, even weeks yeah. potentially, to learn the outcomes, which I guess doesn't matter as much unless it's a really closely contested race. Well, you know, that reminds me of one important point, which is that Colorado is not the rest of the country. While we may have extremely high approval of that survey I mentioned, that was 96 percent of people told Gallup that they liked mail-in voting here. Wow. But we do have quite a number of states dramatically expanding their use of this. So yeah, there is that possibility that we could have long delays and and other issues crop up as we shift to this more nationwide. Because there's that expertise on signature verification and just... Here in Colorado, yeah. Yeah, and just just putting the ballots and feeding them into the machines. And a lot of people still vote at the very last minute, even though it's, (laughs) it's by mail. I've done that myself, so... Yeah, I like to drop it in the ballot box the day of. But yeah, Colorado's had 
decades to practice. So we've got it down. We'll see about everybody else. And so, Lynn, what were you hearing when you were out here? Was this a you know, on people's radars as an issue they were worried about? Yes, it was. I mean, a lot of it had to do with um, U.S. postal funding, which I think we're going to be talking about later. But I, I will say this. I do think that Trump's constant sort of negative drumbeat on all mail ballots, um, even though it's unfounded, is having an effect, including in Colorado. I spoke with Terry Duran and Craig, and he votes by mail, but he's not for the all mail ballots. I'm not for the just mail out all the ballots. What is it when you go register to get get your vote by mail. What's that called? Are you talking absentee ballot? Versus yeah, I have an a, I, I do the absentee ballots. Well, no, but you're Colorado. Colorado is all mail ballot. Everybody gets sent a mail ballot regardless. Right, but I'm for the absentee ballots where you go down and fill out the forms to actually get your ballot. I'm not for just sending it to everybody without without a valid ID and signature which I think is something we constantly hear from President Trump. Yeah, we're seeing the president try to make this uh, distinction between absentee voting and all-male voting. In Colorado, there is no distinction because everyone gets a mail ballot. Other states, you may have to request an absentee ballot. And to be clear, they are matching your signature, and there are measures they have in place to verify who's voting. But in that clip, I think you can see how the president's kind of messaging is is a little bit muddled and it's confusing people and they're trying to latch on to this distinction that doesn't necessarily exist. Well, I I did hear from a Democratic political organizer in Pueblo, Vicente Martinez Ortega, and he's working to turn out voters. You know, that's a Democratic area that backed President Trump last election. Folks on the ground, they're excited to vote. So they're excited for a reason. But also Trump's rhetoric around slamming the mail is working uh, even at this location. People are saying, I don't trust the mail or things like that. And it's very odd. That is a universal theme. People on the right tend to be a little more suspicious of the mail because they think it's going to open up a security fraud. But I'm sure y'all have been hearing this on the left as well. Just concerns that with delays to the mail delivery, that maybe your ballot won't get there in time. So uh, a lot of suspicion suddenly about delivering by mail. Right. And on the left, there is that concern about the Postal Service and its potential to disrupt elections. And that's playing out in this ongoing fight that's happening right now between Colorado's Democratic Secretary of State and the U.S. Postal Service. Jenna Griswold sued the U.S. Postal Service when national mailers were sent out telling people they must request a ballot before the election. You know, you don't have to do that in Colorado. And so a federal judge agreed with Griswold and halted those letters saying it, you know, it's spreading misinformation. Benta, did you ever think that you were going to be saying those words, Secretary of State for Colorado versus the Postmaster General? No. (laughs) And we are seeing this battle also play out in Congress, though, when it comes to funding for the U.S. Postal Service. I think everyone is aware that the U.S. Postal Service is is you know, sort of running out of money. And they've been asking Congress for additional funds. Um, You've seen the House, they came back during the August recess to pass a standalone bill to fund USPS to the tune of about $25 billion. That has not gone anywhere in the Senate. And this is still an ongoing battle about funding and not just funding, but sort of the U.S. Postal Service service, right? Like, there have been concerns about delays, especially when it comes to the mail. And you even had the U.S. Postal Service, um, the Postmaster General, come in, testified to both the Senate and to the House. 
about service and why things have might have slowed down. He called it sort of a they were, you know, they were it was a transition time and he expects it to go away. But this has, you know, it has sowed a lot of doubt. What's an awkward time for a transition? Yeah. Well, there's that, too. But and, and those delays have, have shown up. There was a, an interesting analysis investigation by the New York Times that used these postal tracking codes to show how much first class mail in particular was delayed. And what struck me was that in the Colorado section of the map, you saw Western and Southern, those rural areas were especially hard impacted. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I was also going to say the rural areas had been having postal problems, delivery problems, even before all this happened. I know that um, Representative Tipton, Senators Gardner and and Bennett had been sort of trying to prod the Postmaster General on, on delivery issues at West as well. So, yeah, this doesn't, this doesn't, it sort of adds on to what was already a problem for some of the rural areas. I mean, I think I'm always reminded as we get closer to to a big election, how technical the process is of voting. And, you know, it's obviously very local, but there's so many steps that go into it. And like you said, some of these issues predate the pandemic and the the, the current climate right now. And in 2018 in Colorado, 60,000 ballots sat on a delivery truck and they were delayed getting actually out to voters. Oops. And then in the most recent election, um, Adams County saw ballots mailed out with some incorrect information. So, you know, there are there are issues that happen. It's such a technical process going from from the postal service and delivery and, and through mail ballots and polling places. There's one thing, though, that has helped to solve some of those concerns. Colorado's embraced, especially since 2013, those drop boxes, which people seem to really, really, really like based on my experience. You know, that means that instead of having to send their ballot back through the Postal Service, folks are able to just go and drop it in any number of secure boxes scattered around the state. There's hundreds of them. And even the voters I ran into who were really suspicious of mail voting in general, they didn't even see the drop box as mail voting. Here's a Republican in Weld County named Jim Henry, and here's how he explained his view on drop boxes. That's just like a ballot box at, at the polls. The, ball- the ballots go in, it's a locked box, and nobody can touch it until an authorized person can. And those authorized people are citizen election judges that are bipartisan, so you'd have a team of people going out. They would not be from the same political party. What was funny about Mr. Henry was that just a minute earlier, he had been asking, well, what would stop nefarious agents from stealing thousands of ballots and changing them in the mail? But you introduce that ballot box, feeling a lot more confident. And I think that that speaks to something that we don't know what the outcome would be of, you know, which demographics of voters are least trusting of mail ballots. So is it going to hurt the president with some of his base or and are there Democratic voters who also don't feel as comfortable using that? So that's maybe to be determined. I know I've seen some national reporting looking into that already. Yeah, we know that Republicans, at least according to the polling, greatly prefer to vote in person and tend to trust the mail less. But I think a lot of those voters are pretty determined to go and get their vote counted one way or another. Yeah, I think you can see that on both sides of the aisle as well. What I've been seeing from some people at some Democrats, because they're just a little uncertain about whether or not the mail, you know, because the signature verification can also sometimes be a problem. They want to make sure their vote is counted and they're talking about going in person to vote. Yes, people I, are determined. Yeah. I'm wondering about the, the people who don't usually vote. 
Or, or is that going to stay constant or will we have more of them participating? So I don't know. But, you know, Benta, you did a story that illustrated this surge of interest in voting and in participating about the poll workers, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, Colorado, I mean, we're, we're in a pretty good situation compared to other states where we have a surplus of people wanting to be poll workers, otherwise known as election judges. So the people we were talking about that monitor the drop boxes and essentially are in charge of the the voting, the polling places and everything. So, yeah, there's been a national push because a lot of poll workers are older and more elderly. And especially in bigger urban areas like Mm -hmm. Philadelphia and Milwaukee, uh, they need more poll workers. We don't we don't hear. And also we don't have as many people voting in person. But like your story said as well, um, the response one clerk said was exuberant, where people were coming in droves wanting to volunteer. So there's clearly a strong interest in shoring up the election system. Before we end this episode, I wanted to really quickly touch on the COVID relief package. Caitlin, I know you've been following that pretty closely. Uh, Everyone says they want to get something done. How close are they to a deal? I think the short story is they are no closer to a deal. Although, as you say, everyone says they want one. Uh, I think most recently, President Trump tweeted that he, he thinks Republicans should go big. One GOP senator said that, you know, Republicans are looking at potentially going as high as like $1.5 trillion. But for those of you who haven't been having to follow the minutiae of all this day to day, which lucky you. <laughs> Thanks, um, by the way, Caitlin. We <laughs> really appreciate you right now. I will say this just as a short recap. The House passed what they called the HEROES Act, which was over $3 trillion in mid-May. The Senate sort of decided they wanted to put a pause on any discussions about sort of going forward. And when they finally did... They introduced what they called the Heals Act, which was around a trillion dollars and disunity within the Republican caucus itself over that a price tag that high. They tried to pass something even smaller and very targeted, which didn't pass because of the filibuster. So now you're seeing sort of this how this disunity in the in the Republican caucus in the Senate caucus is going to be inf- affecting the negotiations overall, because the higher the number the more Republican senators you're going to lose. And I think that's sort of what Mitch McConnell is trying to deal with. And he doesn't want to pass something that's mostly backed by Democrats and just a few Republicans, right? Exactly. So just to be clear, the issue we're dealing with is Democrats want to spend a few trillion dollars and Republicans can't even agree on one trillion. Uh, pretty much. I think the Democrats will will come down to about the two trillion. That's what that, that was Nancy Pelosi's last sort of offer was we'll come down to like two trillion. What has uh, what has Senator Cory Gardner said about all this? He's in the middle of a competitive Repub- uh, competitive race. Yeah. So Senator Gardner, I, I will say that Senator Gardner, when the skinny bill came out, he sort of talked about it as being a, a step, an, another little step in the larger scope of COVID relief. He and a lot of other sort of Republicans that are in competitive races have been pushing for more money. I mean, they're not the ones that are holding back sort of the price tag, you know, and Gardner himself has said he does support additional state and local aid. He does, you know, support continuing unemployment insurance, although no one has ever been able to pin him down on what number, the amount. Right. But he's not the one saying no more aid, no state bailouts. That's not that's not him. This is a tough question. But what do you think the odds are of, of getting something done? It sounds like the president's on board and, you know, various members are. You probably hate this type of question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. If you asked me a w- about a week ago, I would have been like five percent. I I will maybe I will maybe go up a little, about twenty percent. 
House Speaker Nancy Pelosi just came out recently and said the House won't adjourn until there is a, a deal on a package. But, you know, what that adjournment really means is people would still be able to go home, but they'd get called back 24 hours with 24 hours notice if there was a deal for a vote. Well, Caitlin, um, you mentioned uh, Trump's tweet recently in which he basically said, well, the Democrats are heartless in this negotiation, but also the Republicans should offer a lot more money. And I, I'm curious how that changes the dynamic, because suddenly it's like Democrats and Trump calling for more money with Senate Republicans in the middle. And that just seems like a very odd dynamic. Well, it, it's it's odd, but it's also not odd because it's been the White House and the Democrats that have been making all these deals and sort of the Senate Republicans have been... I don't want to say dragged along for the ride, but they have come along for the ride. Um, and that's not to say I don't want to like Senate Republicans in the Senate itself has have been doing a lot to try and get these packages through. You know, the CARES Act passed 96 to zero. So yeah. that's not like they're not doing any work. But I think when it comes to this this latest package and, and you know, there are, I think, very legitimate concerns about the cost of everything, especially with the deficit, the size that it is. They don't want to just sort of throw money at the problem. There's, you know, it's a philosophical difference that, hmm. again, I, I'd say 20 percent. That's my yeah. number. Well, the president's never been a, a much of a fiscal conservative. So that's an interesting spot I, I, for your senators to be in. I, I would say this. If they said they announced the deal, I'd be like, wait, what? what, 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 what? <laughs> Ooh. Perfect transition to the final part of this podcast where we talk about something that, that stood out to us and made us think, wait, what? So, um, Andy, Lynn, either of you have something. Yeah, just this morning while I was reading up on uh, mail voting, I stumbled across a National Geographic article that details the beginnings of it in the U.S. And it actually first had its big trial run during the Civil War. Quite a few of the northern states decided they wanted to have their military members be able to vote while they were out in the field. And so they passed laws to allow mail voting by military members. Here's how the National Geographic article described it. The issue quickly became partisan. As Republican candidates supported the cause and appealed to soldiers for their vote, Democrats feared that Republican military leadership would tamper with the results. Remember, Lincoln was a Republican, and ideally we have like the Ken Burns music going behind my voice here. <laughs> they complained of Republican interference and accused them of trying to steal the vote and as a result were painted as anti-soldier and saw their popularity drop. Wow. Wait, what? People arguing? <laughs> Political differences? <laughs> no. We can always count on some things in life, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Politicking and fighting over how elections are administered. <laughs> Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. You can listen in full at CPR.org, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. How does CPR News decide which stories to cover and which voices to include? Hi, it's Megan Verlee from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to be transparent about what we do and how we do it. That's why we've shared our election coverage mission at our website, and it's why we're asking to hear from you as we work to earn and retain your trust. Look for How CPR News Plans to Cover the 2020 Election at CPR.org. Trust the facts. Trust CPR News. Climate change fuels fires, fires make smoke, and smoke reduces air quality. That pattern has paralyzed the western U.S. this summer. It has also created confusion about when or if it's safe to go outside. CPR's Sam Brash reports on how scientists think they could maybe clear things up. 
Wildfire Smoke wasn't invited to Katia Tronweber and Hannah Bergman's wedding. Like any careful party crasher, it snuck in quietly. So I didn't expect it at all when we finished the ceremony and came to take pictures and I like looked out over the city, I was like, oh wow, like I didn't know that that was happening. The couple got married atop Ruby Hill in southwest Denver. It's a park that offers a wide view of downtown and the skies were clear in the morning. But then a fire burning west of Fort Collins picked up. A massive plume of smoke hit the front range, haze shrouded the skyline, and monitors measured very unhealthy air quality, meaning it wasn't safe for anyone to breathe outdoors. But the newlyweds, they didn't sweat. It's not something that I am aware of in in terms of, like, considering my risk. Okay. I think, like, we notice when it's bad if we're out playing soccer or we're out doing something, but don't actively make choices around what it is. Yeah. Yeah. This is not an uncommon attitude. Anna Rappold is a scientist with the Environmental Protection Agency. She conducts studies through an app called EPA SmokeSense. It shows people real-time smoke conditions and then lets them report any symptoms through a survey. The main finding? There is fair amount of awareness about the risk, but we are not taking action to prevent symptoms. We're taking action once we experience symptoms. In other words, people know wildfire smoke is probably not great, but they tend to only avoid it after they feel sick, maybe headaches, tight lungs, or in the worst cases, an asthma attack. From a public health perspective, Rappold would much rather have people take preventative action before they land in the ER. You want people to think of smoke as a component of the weather, right? So like in the weather, in the thunderstorm or in the rain, heavy rain, you would take umbrella, right? So what's the equivalent of an umbrella for wildfire smoke? Tony Gerber is a pulmonologist at National Jewish Health in Denver. And he says when the air quality is really bad, like it was earlier this month, It's pretty simple. There it's an easy answer. Just don't go outside and don't exercise and that. Where it gets trickier is when the air is unhealthy for sensitive groups, like kids or people with lung conditions. In those cases, Gerber thinks there needs to be a more precise way to sound the alarm. He imagines some kind of phone app. You typed in your zip code and your health profile and and maybe five or six quick questions. You'd only do it once. And then it would and then it would spit out to you. The air quality is safe. You're not going to have a problem. But building public knowledge around wildfire smoke might not require fancy technology. Scott Landis is Colorado's air quality forecaster. He says when he started in meteorology, smoke wasn't really in the picture. Air quality was the back porch of meteorology, they called it. It was just one of those things that people just didn't, you know, kind of neglected and it wasn't talked about a lot. That's changed during this year's historic wildfire season. Landis says he's been flooded with requests from journalists asking to get his warnings into their newscasts. And that includes CPR News. For a while there, Landis and I spoke daily about air quality conditions. More and more people are becoming aware that, hey, you know, air quality issues are affecting everybody's lives. It's good to see that the media is is coming on board with that as well. And Landis thinks a little awareness could go a long way. Right now, he thinks people still see air quality as background noise. That was certainly the case for Trone Weber, one of the brides who had that smoky wedding in Denver. It feels like a thing to that I can block out in a way. It's like it's like I know that I'm experiencing it through everything else that I'm experiencing, but I think my focus is so much on other things that it's like over there. Which makes sense. It's literally the air we breathe. 
But as climate change leads to more fires and smokier summers, scientists say it will demand everyone's attention. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. And finally today, music to mark Hispanic Heritage Month, which runs September 15th through October 15th. The national celebration began as Hispanic Heritage Week with a law signed in 1968 by President Lyndon Johnson. In 1988, Congress expanded it to a month-long event. Our colleagues at Indy 1023 are showcasing Latin artists and bands from Colorado, including the Denver-based hip-hop group 2MX2. This is their singer, single that is, Bibiri Balar, Live and Dance. 2MX2 joined Colorado Matters last year for our annual holiday extravaganza. And we spoke with founding member Owen Trujillo, who was born in Zacatecas, Mexico, and moved to Denver, his mother's hometown, at age three. He told us about the band's different musical influences. We've been just making music that embodies our culture and has traces of what we grew up with. Cumbia, bachata, uh, Mexican music, salsa. Basically, all those things that we grew up with, we put into our hip-hop pop music. Love, love. It's what drives and motivates me. Drives and motivates me. I dive into the days deep. I dive into the days My mind is wide awake. We rise and how to save. Please find your light and chase dreams. Back in March, 2MX2 were hurrying to finish their debut album, then the pandemic hit. And the band took it as a sign not to rush the process. Instead, they've been releasing new material when they see fit, including their latest track, Elevator. Make sure everybody watching because I choose to live and part of my life is winning, sharing love and light the way that it was intended. Got no strings to tie our wings. Nothing can hold us down. Denver's 2MX2, one of Indy 1023's featured artists for Hispanic Heritage Month, which kicked off September 15th. To hear more Latin music from Colorado artists, check out this month's local 303 lineup at CPR.org.